future, the history of punk. This episode's topic is glam rock and its influence on punk and the New York punk scene. And New York punk scene, not just the glam rock's influence on the New York punk scene, but the New York punk scene itself. So, this is going to be really fun. So, let's start off with glam rock. Some two really, like, major bands that influenced uh, punk musicians were David Bowie and the New York Dolls. But there were also many others that were hugely influential to these people. To punks. Uh, glam rock, as I just said, was a huge inspiration to punk. But it was also a thing to sort of revolt against. Because um, because of its image. So punks like the whole sexual deviancy and embracing your differences. like um, And uniqueness and that sort of thing. Um... But a lot of punk people disagreed with, like, the polished mass market sort of sound of glam rock. Because it was all, like, professionally recorded in studios and made for your average person, which they disagreed with. I thought that kind of glam rock was too poppy and it tried to appeal to just mainstream music audiences. And punks didn't like that. But it did have its subject matter which was kind of slightly offensive at times. Punks liked that. Um, so here's some differences like between like the Velvet Underground. like They had offensive subject matter, but they had like a strange sound, which didn't really appeal to mass market audiences, and it didn't appeal to most people. But like Glam had offensive subject matter and a polished sound, which appealed to a wider audience, which is kind of interesting. Um... And glam rock's kind of escalating shock value helped kind of give rise to punk because people sort of like, I don't know, started talking, just talked about like horror elements and stuff. And then audiences were, were like kind of no longer shocked. Like, like oh, the whole like Alice Cooper shock rock thing, Iggy Pop, that's just, that's, we're not surprised by that anymore. So then it just escalated till it was people like talking about Nazis and the Holocaust while like dressing in drag. Um, and this whole gender bending, gender bending glam rock thing, Lou Reed is, he really played a major part in it, uh, making it more socially acceptable too, because of, uh, songs he made as a solo artist, like, such as Walk on the Wild Side, which is a basically about sexual deviancy, and, and it was popular even though some people didn't really understand the subject matter or didn't really care. And that made it more socially acceptable. Uh, David Bowie was really one of the first artists to make glam a successful genre. Uh, something that set him apart from his peers was his style and the fact that he wore like outrageous outfits, like his awesome Ziggy Stardust costume, both on and off stage. Uh, and most artists before, like I don't know, Mick Jagger, he wore kind of outrageous things, but he didn't wear that outside of performances and off stage. And that's what made David Bowie really different, and that ideal kind of carried into punk, because a lot of punk people wore the same sort of things on and off stage. And uh, speaking of shock value, bands, punk bands, especially the Sex Pistols, relied on shock value. So this had like a huge influence, the whole, um, just trying to get a rise out of people, and with your style... Wearing makeup and outrageous outfits and all that off stage and as well as on, so yeah, um, probably the most 
the most influential glam rock band to um, punk musicians were the New York Dolls. They had a very amateurish sound. They kind of had really bizarre fashion choices and an attitude which was later adopted by punk. They were formed in 1972 with uh, guitarist and vocalist Johnny Thunders, drummer Billy Mercia, vocalist David Johansson, bassist Arthur Kane, and uh, guitarist Rick Rivets. They played in small venues throughout 1972 and began to attract like a local cult following during their time. During that time, uh, their on-stage appearance it was a lot of drag with long, crazy hair. Uh, cosmetics, unusual outfits, like, they sometimes wore leather jackets and pants, platform shoes, fishnets, cowboy shirts, scarves, halter tops, leopard print jumpsuits, all sorts of awesome, really, really cool style choices. And New York Dolls, they also dressed this way offstage, much like David Bowie, which made them different than mainstream rock stars. And there were lots of other glam bands, like this, performing at similar venues in New York, and those included Kiss, Wayne County, and Eric Emerson, but neither of those were uh, as influential as the New York Dolls, even if a few of them ended up being a lot bigger. So now we get to talk about the fun stuff, the CBGB and the New York scene. So um, there's kind of two different styles of punk. There's the American punk and the British punk. So, this episode's about American punk and New York, and they had different fashion choices, uh, quite a bit different sound. British punk was more kind of going for shock value, and this, a lot of American punk wasn't so much, and was more like, it was different. And also, well, most of the time when you think about punk, you think about like, I don't know, a guy in a leather jacket with a mohawk and stuff. That's kind of like bending of the two different styles, because uh, British punk was like bright colors, sort of mohawks and that kind of thing, and uh, bright colored clothing, and then um, American punk, especially New York punk, there's a lot of like all black and stuff like that, so there's kind of two different punk, main punk scenes originally, and they were the same while also being completely different, um, so just note about that. So CBGB uh, is a New York club originally dedicated to bluegrass and country music. The owner, Hilly Crystal, decided that he would make a club for bluegrass and country music, which is kind of cool. And it later got adopted by punk bands. And the club's full name is uh, CBGB and OMFUG, which is an acronym for Country, Bluegrass, Blues, and Other Music for Uplifting, uplifting Gourmandizers. Which is a pretty awesome name. And also, really awesome club. So, Hilly Crystal, the owner, uh, he's the owner of one of four clubs at the time that allowed uh, unsigned uh, punk bands to perform. Uh, the other clubs were Max's Kansas City, Club 82, and the Mercer Arts Center. So, other rock clubs, or just clubs in general, either catered to non-rock audiences or different types of rock audiences... And the main rock club and a lot of other ones required bands to be signed to a record label before performing there or just wouldn't play punk artists because they thought people wouldn't like it because it was small and not a lot of people liked it back then. 
1974 with the opening of CBGB for the first time. There was a space that was like available to punk musicians on a regular basis. Like all those those other clubs, they were av- the punk bands performed at them, but it wasn't they weren't allowed there regularly, and there wasn't a lot of bands playing there regularly, so there wasn't really a scene around those clubs. But uh, in CBGB, there was because Hilly Crystal basically kind of turned it into a punk club, and it was a place where punk musicians could gather, and where there was almost always music of that sort and. There were so many different bands that kind of sprung out of that. So, that was a good thing for punk. And I think if CBGB hadn't been there, it probably wouldn't have been as much of a punk scene in New York. Because it was so centric around this one club and then a couple others too. Um, So, in 1973, the Broadway Central Hotel was condemned. And then the Mercer Arts Center was closed. So, bands could no longer play there. And then the punk scene kind of appeared to be dying. And then uh, the next year, 1974, Hilly Crystal reopened his bar, previously known as Crystals, and renamed it CBGB and OMFUG. Um, so, I think it would have been really bad if that hadn't happened, because Mercer Arts Center was one of the major clubs at the time that allowed bands like that to perform. Um, uh, in March, the March that it opened, Terry Oak, Ork, the manager of a band called Television, who nobody really heard of at the time, he became to be one of the most influential bands in punk, asked Crystal about the possibility of them playing at CBGB, and he was kind of blown away by that, and the audience it attracted, and then, slowly but surely, a scene grew out of that, and other bands started performing there too. CBGB was located in a section of New York's famous for biker bars, drug dealers, and drug users. So, your average person probably wouldn't go there. It's definitely not an upscale place, which is perfect for kind of punk people, because uh, punk musicians and punk fans could afford to live there, and uh, really could afford to go to these gigs, because it was in... Well, it was really accessible for punk musicians and punk fans. Uh, CBGB's admission was $1, which made it really affordable for musicians of the scene who wanted to see other bands and fans of those bands. And the performing space of CBGB, it was an intimate environment with audience like performers. Uh, and bands often just kind of mingled with the audience before and after sets. There was really no... There's really no space between the stage and where the crowd is, and really made a intimate environment, and kind of, that was one of the main things of punk, just kind of intimate environment where, like, performers mingle with the audience and stuff like that, so. Um, Richard Hell of the band Television, and later Richard Hell of the, and the Voidoids, uh, Television being the band that uh, first performed there first punk band that performed there. Uh, he was one of the major musicians of the New York scene. He pioneered a dissonant sound and kind of unusual clothing style. He often wore torn shirts, like held together with safety pins, which was later adopted by uh, other punks, such as Johnny Rotten. He used style like that very often. 
Another performer who regularly performed at CBGB was Patti Smith. She fused her love of poetry, especially Arthur Rimbaud, French poet, with music by often setting her poems to an electric guitar backing and then becoming a full-blown punk musician. And uh, this is definitely a debate whether which punk album came first and what technically is called punk. And he, she, so she may have created the first punk record in 1974 with the self-released Hey Joe slash Piss Factory, but that's really argued upon by argued about by many people. Many people think the Sex Pistols were the first punk band. The Sex Pistols weren't even formed when this was this album came out. So there's really no clear answer as to what the first punk album was, but that's one that people. Some people do consider to be the first punk album. Um, other performers also performed there during the 70s. Uh, other major performers included uh, Blondie, uh, Talking Heads, the sort of p- uh, art punk band. Kind of these kind of strange sounds and stuff. And uh, the horror punk band Misfits, who became really a cult band in the 80s. And are really well-respected now, but nobody really heard of them then. They got their start there, which is pretty cool. Um, but the most well-known most well-known group to get their start there was the Ramones. The Ramones had a very unique musical style at the time, which was uh, basically three or four chord assault in the senses, uh, quick, really fast songs, and live sets that average only 20 to 30 minutes, played, played at like a breakneck speed with, no breaks between songs whatsoever. And often the songs were played faster than like the studio recordings. So they could like cram they could cram like twenty songs into forty minutes if they tried. Most of their sets weren't even that long, but they could get a ton of songs in a short period of time. And their sets yeah, their sets were really short, but they were just crazy and super energetic. Um their attitude was really, really kind of a quintessential punk thing, sort of bratty attitude. Um, they had nine nine songs starting with the words "I don't," such as "I don't want to go down to the basement," uh, "I don't want to walk around with you," um, "I don't care," a lot of things like that, and that was really a huge influ- influence to punk musicians because this whole bratty thing yeah um countless other songs of theirs have i statements in the title and most of their songs deal with this kind of attitude this is more an american punk thing but also got adopted by other like english punks and um they got their start at cbgb as i already said uh the original members of the ramones were johnny ramone Joey Ramone, Dee Dee Ramone, and Tommy Ramone. None of of their names were actually Ramone. But, uh, they kind of... Their image was as, like, these brothers from Queens. Uh, they got the name, the last name Ramone, because it was the pseudonym used by Paul McCartney when he was checking into hotels. And, uh, all the Ramones were huge Beatles fans. It's kind of interesting, because many other punks hated the Beatles. The Sex Pistols hated the Beatles. The Clash hated the Beatles. Like in the word in 
London Calling, there's a, there's a line, Phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust. And so they, they all kind of hated the Beatles, but Ramones loved the Beatles. And one of the Ramones like, once said, like, we couldn't be the Beatles, so we just did what we did, like, did our thing. So they kind of wanted to be like the Beatles, but they just weren't good enough musicians at that point. And it's probably good that they didn't try to emulate the Beatles, because we might not have punk as it is today. And, yeah. Uh, Also, Ramon's first album, Sid Vicious, he learned how to play bass by playing along to it. It was pretty interesting. And Sid Vicious, as most people know, is bass for the Sex Pistols. Probably the biggest, or maybe not biggest, but most influential punk band ever. So, yeah. Um, that's the end of the podcast today, and thank you so much for listening. Um, please check out the other episodes, and stay tuned for episode four.